Thanks, guys. And thanks, Scott and Mallory. Great to see Mallory again this, this weekend. So great to have her ministering to us as we think about the, the joy of seeing God work in our hearts and in our lives. And hopefully God, as, as they sing, will continue to, to work in our hearts and uh, lives as we look at his word together. And so if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy with me, uh, Deuteronomy, we're looking at chapter 17 and 18. Go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy's, uh, Deuteronomy 18. Remember where we are, we're in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and we are in the book of Deuteronomy, the, the last of those five books, and we saw that the book of Deuteronomy, if you remember, is a series of sermons that Moses gives to the people of Israel as they are preparing to go into the Promised Land. And here in this second sermon, one that began in chapter 12, one of, the, one of the major things that Moses is talking about is how they can live as God's treasured possession. And we've seen, okay, here's how they live as God's treasured possession by fighting against worldliness. Here's how they are joyful givers as God's treasured possession. Uh, here's how they are, are joyful worshipers. We, we've seen those things in the weeks to come. We're going to see about how God's treasured people are to fight injustice and how they are to operate as a family unit. Those are things we're going to, to see the Israelites being called to do as God's treasured possession and how we are called to do as well. But in these chapters, in chapter 17 and in chapter 18, we see Moses describing three offices, three responsibilities that certain people in the covenant community had. The responsibility to serve as, as a king, the responsibility to serve as priests, and the responsibility that prophets had, and particularly a special prophet. And so we're going to begin, the passage kind of begins in verse 14 of chapter 17. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 18, verse 9, as he begins to describe the need for a prophet and a coming prophet. And so, if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of, his God, in honor of God as we read his word together. Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations... There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God." For these nations, which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. The Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. 
And if you say in your heart, how may I, we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. And, and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to come to it. We pray that we would listen to you that our hearts would be in submission to you, that you would help us to know how to walk in obedience to you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a, an obvious question you might have as we look at these verses here in chapter 17, beginning in verse 14, as you go through chapter 18. The first question you might have is, is why these offices? Why did God appoint these offices to the people, and the answer is that the people needed them. Remember, they're, they're being called to live as God's treasure possession, and they needed, they needed a, a king to help them do so. They, they needed a priest who could intercede with them and help them be in right relationship with God. They needed a prophet who could, could speak to them the, the word of God so they could know what they were to do. They, they needed prophet, priest, king. And you say, okay, well, that's great for the Israelites. Uh, why do we need to, to study about priests if we're no longer under the priestly system? Why do we need to talk about a bunch of kings whose names I, I can't remember? Uh, why do we need to talk about prophets that, that no longer exist today? Why do we need to know this, those things? And uh, the answer is that, remember, this is part of a, a big story. The stories that exist in the Pentateuch are not just individual small stories. It's not like, okay, here's a story about Abraham, and here's a story about Joseph, and over here there's a story about Balaam. Uh, these are all part of, of one large story, these first five books of the Bible. And the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, are part of an even larger story. And remember, hopefully you remember what we've seen, that the things that are happening here in the Pentateuch help us understand this entire story. And the things that are happening in the Pentateuch point to Jesus. Remember Jesus and the road to Emmaus we, we saw in, in Luke 24. He's talking to his disciples and he, he tells them, look, th these things uh, were necessary. It was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory. And it says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so as we come to chapter 17 and chapter 18, and we see some things about a priest and about a king and about a prophet, we realize that these things are pointing to Jesus. Jesus is, is the king, the prophet, the priest. And just like the Israelites, you and I need a, a prophet, a priest, and a king. We need a perfect prophet, priest, and king. And hopefully, in fact, as we go through this passage this morning, you'll see how desperately you do need a king, one to, to rule over you. How desperately you do need a, a priest, one to intercede with God for you. And how desperately you need a prophet, someone to, to speak the word of God to you. And in fact, honestly, I'm, I'm a little nervous about some of the things we're going to be talking about at, at the end here. I, I hope, I mentioned this earlier, I hope that everyone has like um, some good shoes on because we're going to be stepping on some toes and, and hopefully this will be uh, received well and hopefully I can say it graciously, but I think that we need a prophet 
particularly in ways that we're not even aware of sometimes. And so hopefully that'll be a good conversation as we look at God's Word together. Here's kind of the central idea that I want us to be, be thinking about. Uh, Jesus, Jesus is our perfect king, priest, and prophet. He perfectly reigns over us. He perfectly brings us to God as our priest. He perfectly tells us God's word as the prophet. And so what we're going to do to kind of go through this passage is we're going to look at each of these offices, the office of king, the office of priest, the office of prophet. We're going to say, okay, how did this function here in this, this chapter in the Pentateuch and kind of in the Old Testament? Then we're going to talk about how Jesus perfectly fulfills that office. And then we're going to say, okay, what does that mean for us? How do I need Jesus to be my king? How do I need him to be my priest? How do I need him to be my prophet? Hopefully this is encouraging to you as we go through this passage this morning. Let's start off with this, a perfect king, right? A perfect king, Jesus reigns over us. Turn to chapter 17 here in verse 14. And as you come to chapter 17, verse 14, this isn't the first time that a king has been mentioned in the Old Testament, right? It's not the first time that a king has appeared in the Pentateuch. God tells Abraham in Genesis 17 that there's going to be a king that comes from him. And he tells Jacob in Genesis 35 that there's going to be a a coming king from God's people. Uh, Balaam, the the false prophet, talks about a coming king. In the book of Numbers, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in uh, the book of Genesis in Genesis 49, Jacob talks about how the king is going to come from the line of Judah. So it's not surprising as you come to this part of the Pentateuch that there's going to be a, a king who comes. Now, listen to what we find out about this king. Listen to what we read. He says, there's going to be a time when you desire a king. You're going to come into the land that God's giving you. You're going to look around and say, you know, we want a king as well. We want a king, he says, you're going to say, uh, like the nations that are around me. And then as he goes through the next verses, we see that it's not a, a bad thing that they desire a king. God says that's okay. The, the bad thing is that they desire a king that's like the nations around them. And in fact, as, as you go through those next couple of verses, he talks about how bad it would be to have a king who's like the nations around them. He says, you shouldn't have a, a king who uh, is, is a foreigner. You shouldn't have a king who's greedy and acquires many horses for himself. You shouldn't have a king who wants to go back to Egypt and takes you away from the land that I'm giving you. No, you don't want a king who's going to acquire for himself many wives that are going to turn his heart from God. That's, that's not what you desire. Here's the type of king that you should have. He describes that king in verses 18 through 20. You want a king who's going to sit on the throne of his kingdom and write out for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by by the Levitical priests. And this law will be with him. This this copy of the law that he writes himself is going to be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and they may not turn aside from the commandments either to the right hand or the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So what you want is you don't want a king that's like the nations who's going to cause you to walk away from the Lord, his, his place that he's called you to, the commandments that he's given you, the worship that he's called you to. You want a king who's going to, to come to my word and, and write it down and, and learn it and then call you to live in it. Now remember, 
This isn't just a couple verses in Deuteronomy. This is part of a big story. What happens next? Well, you have the period of the judges. They come in the land. You have the period of the judges. And then there's the time of establishing a king. And, and the people don't do what God had called them to do. They, they desire a king that's like the other nations. That doesn't go very well. And then the next king is David. And David is a king who does desire. He doesn't do so perfectly, but he is a king who desires to walk after the Lord. He wants to be obedient to his commandments, and he wants to call the people to do the same. And God tells David in 2 Samuel 7, he tells David that his kingdom is going to have no end. You and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Remember this part of the big story. He tells David, this is the the Davidic covenant, look, you're going to have a king who reigns forever. And then what happens as you go through 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, what, what happens next? You have all these kings whose names we all get mixed up, right? Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And God deals with those kings. But as he talks about these kings, there's a couple things that are interesting to notice, Right? First of all, even as kings disobey him, particularly the kings that are in the, the southern kingdom, that are part of Judah, that are part of David's line, he says, look, I'm not going to totally do away with you because of the promise I made with David. And also, as he evaluates each king, he doesn't talk about, hey, and this king was a really amazing ruler and they really took it to Egypt or they really showed the Babylonians what was what. Or, you know, he doesn't evaluate their, their kingdoms in terms of their great diplomatic moves, how does he evaluate each king? It's on their adherence to what? To his law. This king walked in obedience to God, or this king, his heart wasn't walking in obedience to, to God. And that's how each king is evaluated. Now, what do we see as we come to Jesus? We see that all this, this kingdom that kind of we, we see developed here in Genesis, I'm sorry, in Deuteronomy 17, we see all this, this kingship in Israel was designed to point to the ultimate king, to Jesus. What does Jesus say in Revelation 27? He, in Revelation 27, he, he confesses, I, I, I am the descendant of David. I am the Davidic king. And as you come to the New Testament, you see Jesus, what is Jesus preaching about? He's preaching about a kingdom. And why is he preaching about a kingdom? Because he's a king. And as we go through the story of the New Testament, it's the story of this king that was promised in the Old Testament coming in the New Testament. And we see as we come to the New Testament that there is a king, Jesus, whose reign is, it has begun and is continuing to grow. In some ways it's hidden, in some ways it's revealed. And it's a kingdom that is going to be surely established. And it's a kingdom that at some point in the future, every nook and cranny of the created universe is going to recognize his kingship. That's where we're headed. Now, how do we respond to that? Is it true that you and I need a king like that? Absolutely, right? What do we need in a king? It's kind of hard to get too excited about governmental authority the week after April 15th and tax day, right? But uh, we, we see bad authority all the time. What, what do you and I need in government? What do we need in a king? at least two things. You and I need a king who's good and we need a king who's powerful. 
If I have a powerful king who's not good, that that's bad. If I have a good king who doesn't have the power to act in accordance with his goodness, that's not good either. But what do I have in Jesus? I have a a king who is absolute perfection. It's not just that he's a, a king who does some good things. He's a king whose goodness itself. He doesn't need to, to write down the word of God to, to remember what God's law is. He is the word of God itself. And not only is he the word of God itself, but he, he, he's good. And not only is he good, he's, he's powerful. And what does it mean that he's powerful? He's, he's powerful not just in the sense that he has the ability to compel me to do good things, He is powerful to a whole new level. He's powerful because he has the ability to change my very heart so that I have the desire to walk in obedience to my great God. That's a powerful king. Do you need a king like that? Absolutely. You know, some of us this morning, we say, um, I'm struggling with sin. I'm struggling with bitterness. I'm, I'm struggling with immorality. I'm struggling with, with lying. I'm struggling with my, my, my speech. I'm, I'm, I'm hurting this morning as I think about sin. I sing loud, but on the inside, I'm dead. Some good news. You've got a powerful king. He can overcome sin. Colossians 3, he's a victorious king. In Colossians 3, what does it say? If you've been raised with Christ, you have a king who's manifested his victory over sin and death and the cross and his resurrection. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. See the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You and I have a perfect king. A king who can reign over us, who's good and who's powerful. Whenever uh, I became a family pastor at, at Bethany Baptist Church, um, I, began to meet, I began to meet more with, with families, and there was kind of this interesting phenomenon that would, would take place. A, a family would be in crisis. There'd be some sort of situation that had happened, maybe a, a situation with a, a child, or maybe there'd been some, some immorality or infidelity in the, the marriage relationship. And so uh, we'd get together, and, and our, our first time together would, would go well in, in many ways. We would talk about what God's desire was for the family and what God's desire was for their lives. And we would all come to the end of that session saying, man, we, we want to glorify God in our lives. That's, that's our desire, right? And, and then we'd have a second session. And in the second session, we'd say, okay, how did we, how did we mess this up? What, what happened? We're, we're frail. We're human beings. How, how did we mess up here? And, and we'd, we'd generally come to agreement like, hey, you know what, this this relationship that I was engaged in as, as a husband was, was wrong, or this, this communication that we had with our, our children was, was sinful, or, or what we did to our, our parents. We, we all agree in this, maybe the second session, first and second session, we say, okay, this, this is how we messed up. This is what we did that was, that was wrong. And then we, then we begin to talk, maybe third or fourth session, we say, okay, now here's, here's how we're going to change. Here's, here's what's going to be different. And then there'd be some point where we kind of started talking about just some practical applications of, of submitting our lives to Christ. So we would have agreed to this point, and then we'd start talking about different things that we could do. And maybe we'd talk about five things, and yeah, this is where we want to grow, and this is what the wife would say, this is how I want my husband to be transparent. And the, the husband, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there'd, there'd be a sticking point at some point. Everything's gone well so far, and then some sticking point. And that sticking point 
became the, the point at which we, we knew whether progress was going to be made or spiritual disaster was, was looming, right? Sometimes it'd be big, sometimes it'd be small, but there'd be some issue where, for example, maybe the husband would have to say, man, am I going to submit to King Jesus in this area? And sometimes the answer would be, I don't want to do this, but I, rec- I need to do it. There'd be this, this moment, I'm going to do this, and, and, and change, radical change would take place. And brothers and sisters, sometimes, sadly, there'd be a, a sticking point, and, and husband would say, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be transparent in this area. Look, I'm going to be transparent in all these other areas. I'm going to do all, or agree, 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 agree. Little tiny disagreement. How bad that can be, how bad can that be? It would be disastrous. Now, now, here's what I'm asking you this morning as we think about Jesus as king. Is it possible that there is an area of your life where you know that Jesus, as your king, is, is calling you to deeper obedience and, and you're resisting it, right? So look, I, I've been obedient in these, there's eight areas. Man, I've been super obedient in seven. Just, I'll eventually get to this, this one, maybe, maybe not. But just the idea of being obedient to God in that area frightens you and, and you can't imagine life of, of you can't, Imagine a life of radical obedience in that area. Maybe it's a relationship. You know that there's a relationship you're involved in. Maybe you're dating someone, they're not a believer. You know where this is headed. You're like, you know what, I, I just don't want to give this relationship up. Or maybe it's, it's, maybe it's some television program. You know, man, I, I watch this and I find it entertaining. I know that my, my king doesn't want me to do this, but, but I, you know, I, just, I, I can't imagine a life where I, I don't enjoy this or engage in this activity. I, I don't know what it is, but maybe there's some area, there, there's a sticking point, and God's calling you, look, are, are you going to submit to me as king? And, and here's my encouragement to you. You need a king like that, and you have one. Not some tyrannical, hateful king who says, you know what, how can I, how can I make your life as, as hard as possible as you live in obedience to me? But no, brothers and sisters, we have a loving shepherd for our king who is commanding you because he loves you to walk in obedience to him. What's the sticking point for you? Submit to your king. You don't have a king whose reign is pathetic. You don't have a king whose goodness is is compromised. You have a king who's powerful, who can change you and allow you to walk in perfect obedience to him. Here's the second office we see here in this section of Deuteronomy, the office of priest, a, a perfect priest. Jesus brings us to God. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about this this morning. We've talked about Jesus as priest whenever we were going through the book of Leviticus. If you're a youth and going to be coming to summer camp or you have kids who are going to be coming to summer camp, we'll talk about that in the future. Encourage you to have kids come uh, to summer camp if they're able to. Uh, we're going to be talking about Jesus as the perfect pra- uh, priest, perfect sacrifice, things like that. But Jesus brings us to God. Now what happens here in verses 1 through 8 He's talked about priests uh, throughout the Pentateuch, but here, again, he emphasizes the need of the people to have the priests in their community, and not just the priests, but the Levitical uh, people who are engaged in uh, ministry 
alongside of the priests. And he says, look, you need to have them in your communities and you need to, to provide for them. They're essential for you to be reminded of God's holiness, your sin, and what it takes to be in relationship with God. Okay? So, that's what's happening here in verses 1 through 8. Now, how is Jesus the perfect priest? Well, we've, we've talked about this. Remember, we went through Hebrews, and Hebrews 7 says the former priests, this is uh, Hebrews 7, 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. In other words, uh, priests had a shelf life, right? You know, they're, they're not going to live past a certain point. In fact, they had to retire after a certain point, and so you couldn't have a, a priest who endured forever. But Jesus is, is different. Verse 24, and, and brothers and sisters, this should be so encouraging to you this morning, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. There's no, there's no shelf life with Jesus, the, the perfect priest. He's a priest who's always there, and, who, and we've talked about this before. Not only does he fulfill the role of being an intercessor, He's also the perfect sacrifice. And verse 25 of Hebrews 7 tells us, consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans tells us the same thing. Romans uh, chapter 8 what should we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us. He was our, our sacrifice. What then, if, if God did that with Jesus, what then should we be afraid of? Who, who's going to charge us with anything? Who, who's going to stand up and say, yeah, uh, I've got a problem, God, with that Daniel guy? Like, what, what's the basis upon which they're going to have a problem with me? I mean, don't answer all at once. I know but biblically, theologically, because of Jesus being my priest. It's God who justifies. Who's gonna, who has the authority to condemn me? Look, Jesus is the one who died. This is Paul speaking. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so, you know, if a person wants to stand up before God and say, hey, God, listen, I, I've got some problems with that Daniel fella. God says, look, um, yeah, Jesus is covering this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I, I, I'm in Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then at the end of Romans 8, I'm, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth. And by the way, if I haven't covered anything nor anything else in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, how is that beneficial for us? How do we respond to Jesus Christ as our priest? Well, it's, it's pretty simple. I have absolute security and peace in the knowledge that Jesus Christ is my perfect priest. That right now, he is in the presence of, of God the Father interceding for me. And so as God the Father looks at me, he sees not my sin, but the righteousness of his son, Jesus, the perfect priest. For those of you who are discouraged this morning, for those of you who live in fear as you contemplate your relationship with God, that's a phenomenal truth. Now here's the last thing I want to cover, and, and I'm going to spend a little more time on this one. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the one where maybe some of us are going to get a little bit uncomfortable as we get into this, just remember, just say to yourself, 
I love this guy. He loves me. I'm going to be okay. Um, we're we're going to look at what God's Word says, and we're going to talk about some of the applications, and, and hopefully, uh, hopefully this will go well here, all right? Let's talk about a perfect prophet, a perfect prophet. Jesus tells us, and in fact, he is God's Word. Now, Here's what happens in verse 9 of 18. So so turn with me, if you're not already there, to Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. He says there's there's a potential problem. Remember, this whole sermon is about going to the land, living as as God's treasure possession. He says, now, there's a potential problem. What is that problem? The potential problem is you're going to go into the land and you're going to engage in some things that are abominable to God and you're going to try to find out some things about how God wants you to live, and you're going to try to figure out some things about how God wants you to live by, by seeking revelation that's not God's revelation. He talks here about people who burn their children in sacrifices. He's talking about worship of the god Moloch there, just, just terrible things that were done in order to, to curry the God's favor, the God's favors. He talks about those who practice divination, and practicing divination means there you're, you're consulting uh, the gods, you're, you're telling fortunes, you're trying to have the ability to, to see the future. He talks about those who interpret omens, and the, these are people who would go and they, they, you know, they, they'd uh, look at leaves or they'd look at the entrails of animals, they, they'd engage in some things and say, okay, I'm, I'm seeing this, and so I, as I see this, I think this means that, that this is going to happen, I think this is, is a good sign, or I think this is a bad sign, that's what they, the people around them would be engaging in. There were people who were sorcerers. These are, there are people who could interact with the spirit world and could create spirit beings. There were those who were charmers. It's not talking about guys like me. It means like charmers like would create spells, okay? Right? People who were saying, okay, you're, you're going on this journey. Let me cast this charm, and so this journey will go well with you. And then he says, you're, you're also uh, not to have uh, anyone among you who's a, a medium or a necromancer or inquires of the dead. And, and those are people who would... Who would uh, uh, communicate and interact with the, 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 the spirits of the dead, supposedly. So, okay, here's, here's the dead. We want to find out. We want to continue relationship with those who have died before us, and so we're going to, to engage in communication with them through necromancy, through talking to the dead, and God says, no, 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 that you're going to have no part of that stuff. Stay away from that garbage. People around them, they want special revelation, they want special communication, and so they inquire of the dead, they cast charms, they read tea leaves or, or omens or whatever it is, and God says, no, that's, that's not how you're to decide how to live your life. That's not how you're to, to know how you're to live. Your live is my treasure possession, don't go asking omens, don't be seeking signs from the dead, stay away from that garbage. And the people say, well, what are we supposed to do? And then he describes, well, here's, here's what I'm going to do, God says. I'm going to provide to you a prophet, and listen to this. It is to him, this is verse 15, it is to him you shall listen. And then in verse 15 uh, through 18, he kind of describes uh, how this, this uh, office of prophet came about. And then he says, um, that you're there to listen to him. Remember he said that in verse 15, and if you don't listen to him, you're going to be accountable. So if, if he says something and you don't listen to him, I'm, I'm going to hold you responsible. He's, he's saying my words. The, the words of the prophet are my words, says God. And they say, well, hold on. You know, what, what's, what's the obvious question they might have next? Um, 
okay, uh, how do we know? In other words, it's not just today that all of a sudden there are crazy people going around saying, hey, God said this, and God says this, I'm a prophet. Uh, that happened here, too. And the people are saying, okay, if I'm walking around and some guy says, I'm a prophet of the Lord, listen, how do I know? Is he a prophet of the Lord or is he not a prophet of the Lord? And here he says, here's a test. If what he says comes true, or if what he says doesn't come true, he's not a prophet. You don't have to listen to him. And elsewhere, he's going to talk about how, and if, if his word contradicts what I've told you to do, you know he's not a prophet and you don't have to listen to him either. Now what happens next? That's, that's here in Deuteronomy 18. What happens next? Again, the Pentateuch is part of a big story. As we go through, we talked about what happens as we go through the historical books of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. You have these, these kings. Then, and you see some prophets in there as well. But then you come to the, the prophetic books. And, and what are the prophetic books? They're not just about the future. The prophetic books in the Old Testament are about the, these prophets who God raises up to speak truth and God's word to God's people. But again, what is their, their basis for condemning or condoning the actions of the kings and of the Israelites and the people from the southern kingdom? What, what's, what's the basis of their, of their authority? It's God's word. They're using these first five books of the Bible, particularly Deuteronomy. They say, okay, look, here's, here's how you violate it. This is what God says, and this is what you're doing. This is what God says, and this is what you're doing. This is what God says not to do, and here you are doing it. And so the basis of the, the prophet's communication to, to the people is the They're having these prophets come, and there are these two kings, and they're having these prophets come and tell them, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do. And uh, Jehoshaphat says to Ahab, says, hey, don't you have a true prophet who can tell us what to do? And uh, Ahab says, yeah, there's this guy, Micaiah, but I don't like listening to him. And why not? Well, because he always tells me things I don't want to hear. Okay? <laughs> so they don't like him. Now, how, who's Jesus? Jesus, we see as we come to the New Testament, perfectly fulfills the office of prophet. He is the, the perfect prophet to whom the Old Testament points. John 1.21, they asked John the Baptist, are you the prophet? And John says, no, not me. 
The people then begin to realize it's Jesus. John 6, 14, they, they see Jesus and say, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the, into the world. Peter is speaking to the people in Acts chapter 3, and, and he testifies that Jesus is this prophet. He says, look, uh, you people, you denied the Holy and Righteous One. Uh, I know you acted in ignorance. Uh, God is calling you to repentance. This is the one of whom Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He's, he's quoting Deuteronomy 18. He's saying, Jesus was this prophet. And you, you killed him. God testifies that Jesus is the prophet. Luke 9, 35, on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember there's, there's Moses and Elijah and Jesus. They're all up on the mountain, and, and Peter has those foolish words about, hey, let's, let's build a tent for everybody. In other words, we've got three really good prophets here. And, and what, is Jesus, uh, what does God testify about Jesus? It says there's a voice that comes. It's God's voice, and he says, this is my son. This is my chosen one. And then what does it say? What does God say? Listen to him. Now, that phrase, listen to him, listen to Jesus, what is that from? It's from Deuteronomy 18. There's coming a prophet. Listen to him. Who's Jesus? He's that prophet. Now, here's where things get a little dicey, okay? And remember, you love me. And we've been through a big ordeal here with the lights going out together, so we're all good, right? Um, how do we need Jesus as our prophet? Let me suggest to you, we, we need a true prophet because like the Israelites, we're tempted to find and listen to the wrong authorities and, and to seek special revelation in places where God hasn't called us to look. You say, well, I don't consult with necromancers and, you know, uh, omen seekers. And what Do we? You know, I, I've, I've talked to, to those who would say they're believers, and, and there are some who would say, you know what, they, I, I do engage in some sort of communication with the dead. And, and again, I, I want to say this in, in a kind tone, but even our, our Roman Catholic friends in, in engaging in prayers to the, to the saints, uh, they would use some different terminology. They disagree with what I'm, how I'm characterizing what happens here, and, and that's fine. But, but I would say I, I believe that that violates what's being prohibited here in Deuteronomy 18. Look, you don't engage in talking to the, to the dead. You don't engage in talking to the souls of those who've, who've departed in order to, to interact with this world. That's, that's not appropriate. That's not how God has told us to live. Even evangelical friends, Whitney and I were talking to a friend some years ago, and, and she was talking about um, her, her grandmother who had, who had died, and she talked about how she believed that uh, her grandmother and, and other ghosts were kind of around influencing her life. And uh, I thought she was joking, and so I, I sent her and uh, Whitney a Photoshop picture of our, our kids playing and Casper the Friendly Ghost. Um, it was not funny, okay? It, it was not funny to, to the—and she goes, no, I, I really believe that— um, I really believe that my, my grandmother is, is interacting with, is concerned about what's going on in my life and, and influencing it. And th there's a possibility of, of communicating. I, I think many Christians believe that. And the positive thing in that is that we recognize that those that we love have not ceased to exist. They're, they're still in existence, and I believe that they still love us, and, and we still love them. And yet, what has God said? At this moment in time, uh, we're not to be engaging in relationship with them. They aren't the ones from whom we, we figure out how to live. They're not, there's no biblical uh, indication that they're involved in, in this life and what's happening in our lives in any way whatsoever. And the attempt to engage them is expressly prohibited in, in Scripture, right? That's not how we go about deciding how to live our lives. 
We also, again, hopefully, I'm saying this in love, we also as, as Christians are, are tempted to be omen seekers. You know, we're, we're thinking about making a decision, and so, you know, there, there's some sort of circumstance that happens, and, 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 and just like the Israelites, we're saying, okay, this happened, and so I think this means, means God is, is doing this, or, or this is going to happen next. You know, I, I was thinking about getting a job, and I got an email about a job. I was thinking about a car, and I saw a car for sale, you know. It's an omen. Christians use that. It's an omen. Now, am I saying that God doesn't work circumstantially? Of course not. Of course he does. But look, I cannot say, thus saith the Lord, based on some omens, based on some coincidences, based upon circumstances. Christians, I think we also struggle in in misinterpreting Scripture. We come to a passage, it says what we want it to say, and and we say, okay, I I think this is saying God wants me to to ask for a job promotion, or God wants me to ask that this this girl will go to to the dance with me, or this this person's going to marry me because I've I've read this text of Scripture, and and I think it means this for my particular application, so thus saith the Lord. And we're we're speaking with an authoritative voice in an area that God hasn't revealed to us, and we have to be careful. We also, again, I want to be kind here, I think we also are, are tempted to listen to prophets w- without discernment. There are, if you, if you search the most popular Christian books, you're going to find a, a lot of books uh, on that list of, of popular teachers that, that I believe are, are, are prophets who have discredited themselves, teachers who have discredited themselves whose words are, are contrary to what God has said we're to do and how we're to think about life, and, and even sometimes in relationship with the dead. My, my um, family member one time gave me a book about a, a, a man who had died and, and claimed to have gone to heaven, and, and again, it, it, to me it affects exactly what's happening here in Deuteronomy that, that's prohibited. And, and not just that I think that's an application of this, and you can disagree with me on that, but the words that he spoke about what he saw contradict with what we see in Scripture. There was recently a, a, a book about a, a boy who went to heaven and uh, as he became a teenager said, hey, you know what, guys, I, I made the whole thing up. And Christian retailers had to pull all those books off the shelves. And look, if, if we had just been discerning at the beginning, we would have realized that some of the things that he's saying contradict, in that book contradicted with what we see here in Scripture and the book would have never been on the bookshelves in the first place, right? I'm not, I'm not saying we never read things from people who aren't perfect, but I'm saying as we look to authoritative voices and where we're going to get our revelation, our understanding about the world to come and the world that we live in now, we're discerning. Which brings me to another application here. Um, not only are we tempted to be omen seekers or interact with some things we aren't supposed to, sometimes, and again, I say this very gently as someone who's guilty of this at times as well, Sometimes we are our own false prophets. Like we ourselves are false prophets to ourselves. There's a circumstance in our life and we're saying, you know what, uh, God has told me that, that this is what I'm supposed to do. You know, I'm, I'm, in this, I'm in this relationship and God has told me that this is the person that I'm supposed to marry. Uh, this, this afternoon, uh, some of the the deacons and elders are going to be getting together to kind of talk about, hey, what, 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 is, what are some of the things that, that we need to be pursuing over the next years in our church life? And, and you know, it's, it's a dangerous thing. Sometimes you can, God has told us that we're going to do, God has told us we're supposed to do this. And I was uh, 
a friend's church one time, and he was speaking, and he said something, you know, God has told me that we're going to do, do such and such with, with a building program. And I came to him up afterwards. I'm like, hey, man, uh, love the vision, but help me understand, how do you use that phrase, God told me? And he said, yeah. As soon as that came out of my mouth, I'm like, what am I saying? <laughs> right? We do it all the time. Now, can we say God told me? Absolutely. You know what? God has told me that I need to love my wife. You know, God has told me that I, I need to be sharing the gospel with, with those who don't know him. But that's not how we use the phrase a lot of times, right? We use the phrase to describe situations that we don't have a clear revelation from God. And you know what? It's okay for us to make decisions about areas that aren't expressly described in Scripture. So, for example, I'm, I'm deciding between a couple jobs, and you know, I, have, I look at the biblical principles, and I don't see a, a violation of any biblical principles or wisdom principles. I talk to people and say, you know what, both those things, you're going to be able to, to provide for your family. You're going to be able to, to serve in a good church. You're going to be able to, to be obedient to God in, in those areas. Um, you know what? You, you can do either you can make either a decision about those jobs. You don't have to say, God told me to take this job. In fact, I think it's dangerous to use those words because you, you don't know for sure. In fact, um, you know, now maybe every time you've used the phrase, uh, God has told me to do such and such, you've been right 100% of the times. So my, my guess is there have been times you've said, you know what, God is really calling me to do this, and, and you've been wrong. Um, that means your track record isn't perfect. Now, if you've been right 100 times out of 100, I'd love to talk to you. I have some decisions I need to make. But um, if that's not true of you, be careful, brothers and sisters, right? Be careful. The point is we don't need omens. We don't need to talk to people who are dead. I don't need to do some sort of misinterpreting of Scripture in order to understand what I need to do with my life. I've got the prophet. I've got the perfect prophet. I've got Jesus Christ himself who reveals to me what I need to do with my life. And here's the beautiful thing. Not only is he the prophet who tells me what I need to do, but when I've messed it up and I've said things about him that aren't true or I've engaged in some potential heresy. He's also my priest who intercedes with me, so I'm covered, right, by his grace. He's my perfect king who instructs me. Two very simple suggestions here, right? Flee from false and worldly authoritative prophecies. Just just flee from those things that that tempt our hearts to, you know, I want some sort of voice to speak into this, and so I'm going to turn to these things that God has called me not to turn to. And my my other suggestion is just fly to God's all-sufficient, authoritative, and prophetic word. Trust God's authority and its sufficiency. And in areas where God's word doesn't speak, don't fear, right? You can be confident, I am, I am not disobeying God if I'm doing something that's not prohibited in the Scripture. And I, I can, with joy, pursue those things that are commanded and encouraged in Scripture as I trust in God and his, not just authority, but his, his role as my king in, in preserving and keeping me. Brothers and sisters, we need a king. 
We need a, a king who will reign over us. We need a priest who will intercede for us. We need a prophet who will tell us how to live and what God's word is. And in Jesus Christ, we have a perfect king. We have our, our perfect priest. And we have our perfect prophet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have provided us your son, Jesus. We pray that, that by your grace we would cling to him. And, and Father, in, in times where we are troubled, where times where we are uncertain about the path ahead, we trust in your son, Jesus. We trust for him to provide for us. We trust for him to intercede for us. Before you, we, we trust for his all-sufficient provision of himself. We pray this in his name. Amen.